0: So many people treat the important things of life very lightly. And we, we ha- we're in a society that lacks a seriousness about things of eternal value. We have um, a, a really lopsided importance on things that are temporary. You know, it seems that our primary concern is about entertainment. And, you know, entertainment is certainly king. And so, you know, we, we think we need more leisure time. You know, many think that if I can just get through this week, if I just get to Friday, or if I just get through to retirement, then that's what I need. But that's not what we need. You know, our priorities are many times upside down. Our world is upside down. And so we need to think seriously about the things of God. And we have a question tonight that we want to address that is of great importance. It's how can I know that I am saved? And the creator of the universe says in Mark 8:36 and 37, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So the value and worth of our soul is compared to in the entire world. Even if you had all the money in the world where you couldn't even spend it all, or if you had so much prestige and fame, you were a, a well-known, you know, just a household name. And, you know, everybody praised you for all the great things you do. But then you lost your soul. You've lost everything. So this is indeed very serious. And we want to address that seriously. So salvation. How do we know if we're saved? You know, many people have doubts. Uh, I would say most maybe even have doubts. And there's many reasons for that. One of the big reasons is that many people have never actually truly been saved. So there's doubts. Um, some have continuing sin that can cause them, how can I be saved if I'm still doing all these sins or if, if this sin is just still in my life? Or still others will doubt because they don't feel saved. Of course, emotions are fleeting. Our feelings are not trustworthy. So... You know, even John the Baptist. We have an um, example in Scripture where John the Baptist had his doubts. In John 1:29, it says that he saw Jesus coming to him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And then later in Matthew 11, he said, while he was in prison, he sent disciples to ask Jesus if he was the expected one. Now something maybe unexpected happened here, because Jesus in verse 11 says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see, Jesus did not rebuke or criticize John for his doubts. God knows we will have doubts. But what do we do with those doubts? You know, can we ever know for sure? If so, how? How do we know that? And so the way we deal with our doubts, though, is, through God's Word, the source of all truth, it is certainly sufficient to answer these questions. So, what I want to do is we will look at First John chapter one, and we'll go over into a little bit of chapter two. But um, you know, First John is um, only five chapters, but it really tackles this problem head on. Um, if you go to the last chapter, First John five thirteen, um, he states the purpose of this. He says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know. If you read the book of 1 John, you'll see that know is prevalent throughout. You can know. I, I think it was around 40 times it's, it's repeated in this book. And, you know, salvation isn't wishful thinking. It's not a maybe we can know. One way or the other, we can know. You either have been born again, or you have not. And so it's not a cycle of being saved today, not saved tomorrow, then saved again. You know, Christ only died once. If we're truly saved, then the security of our salvation is never in doubt. What can waver, though, is our assurance of salvation. So we want to find out, one way or the other, have. Security about it and have that assurance, or know that we're not. So that's, the, that's what's before us tonight. Um, John MacArthur, he has a pamphlet that we have here. It's, it's uh, called "Is It Real?" And it addresses this question fairly well. It goes through 11 biblical tests for genuine salvation. And so we're going to cover some of those tonight um, in first in John. So we're going to read First John one. Uh, we're going to start out with just the first four verses. Look through those. The first question in those first four verses we want to look at is Do you have fellowship with the living God, the living Christ, and his people? So, 1 John 1 1 through 4 says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So John starts out here introducing us to Jesus He's proclaiming Jesus, the real Jesus. So many people have their own Savior. They are their own God. They have deified something besides Christ. But what we're talking about here is the eternal Jesus, God the Son. So he starts verse 1 saying that he was from the beginning. And at the end of that verse, he said he's the word of life. So that takes us back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we see that Jesus' eternal life in verse 2 And he also says this in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have this life. So you see this divide develop. Have the Son or do not have the Son. He continues in verse 2, he says, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So Jesus came and was made visible. He took on flesh. In John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you may wonder, why does John start out this way? What does... What does this have to do with assurance of salvation? And he says in verse 3, he says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim. So John and his fellow apostles, they have seen and they have heard. And it, uh, previously it said they have seen with their eyes, they have touched with their hands. They've been with Jesus. And he says, we proclaim to you also, so that you too. So the primary, the strict focus here is Fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's the strict purpose for us to have fellowship with the Father and Son. That's why He's proclaiming Jesus here. So Jesus came on and took flesh so that we can have fellowship with the Father as He does. And then we're united with other believers who share that same fellowship with the Father and the Son. And this is where our first big question comes up. In verse 3, do you have fellowship with the living God, the living Christ, and his people? See, to have fellowship is to be in communion. It's to be in agreement with the Father and the Son. If you have fellowship with God, then it means you have the same desires. That you love what is loved by God. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. So the essential question we have is, do you love God and the things of God, the people of God? You know, do you love to spend time with God and the people of God? Um, And many times when we see these questions like that, you can sort of blow right past them a lot. You know, so we want to drill down a little bit more, get some specifics, some evidences of what that may entail. So one of those is, do you desire to know God's word? And again, let's don't be flipping about it. Have you read it today? Did you read it yesterday? Have you read it this month? How often do you read his word? You know, God will draw near to you in his word. When you study the Bible, do you discover truth that you haven't known before? And does that result in gratitude toward God that he has revealed this truth to you? So when you're reading then, that's God speaking, that is God, um, that's God's words, Do you then desire to pray to God? Do you experience that joy when talking with the living God? Puritan John Bunyan says prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. So you have the word, you have prayer, and then you have other believers. Do you love other believers? Now I'm not saying that we love all believers perfectly because we don't for sure. but there must be that love present, and you must have that desire to meet their needs. It's not um, it's not a casual how are you doing like we say, and it doesn't really mean anything. There has to be meaning there. Do you truly care? Because if you care for someone, you will sacrifice. Are you really showing that you care to others? You know, do you look forward to sharing the things of God? With fellow Christians. For you can't have fellowship with Jesus if you don't trust him. And if you love what Jesus loves, then you'll love the church, for he died for it. So if you don't love those in the church, then you're still in the dark, no matter what you may claim. You must have love for the brethren. So the second section we want to look at is we'll continue in chapter 1. We'll read verses 5 through 10. We'll finish out the chapter and then read the first two verses in chapter 2. And this deals with our sin. What do we do with our sin? It's something that we all face. So we'll start in verse 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. If you talk to people much, you'll realize that people generally think they're good. Um, That is until you can show them the reality of their circumstance, of their condition. People get tripped up on what the definition of good is. And that is moral perfection in thought, word, and deed. And a quick peruse through the Ten Commandments will show this out. For your thought, are you ever hating someone? Have you ever hated someone? If you have, you've broken the Sixth Commandment. Because First John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you have moral perfection in your words? Have you ever told a lie? Then you're a liar. You've broken the ninth commandment. Indeed, have you ever stolen anything? Then you're a thief. You've broken the eighth commandment. Perhaps, though, you're still stuck on your your natural goodness. So let's look at verse 10 in chapter 1. It says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So to say that we've not sinned is to call God a liar, and that's blasphemy. In the Old Testament, that was punished by death. A very serious crime. So if this is you, if you've told a lie, if you've or if you still think you have not sinned, you are walking in darkness. You're blind to the light of God because that's the only way people can ever choose to prefer something, to desire something other than God, is to be blind to the light of God. But the opposite of that is walking in the light. And you see in verses 7 and 9, he says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to walk in the light is to have fellowship with God. You know, believers are sensitive to this to their sin. It's um something that they know. We know we must confess that. It says there in verse nine, if we confess our sins, he will cleanse all sin by the blood of Jesus. And that's what's required to commune with God. So we get to the questions for this section. It says Do you walk in the light or in the darkness? Verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Is that you? Or is it like verse 7? Do you walk in the light as he himself is in the light and have fellowship with one another? So in other words, do you love God and reject this evil world? First John 2.15, go forward a little bit, says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So are you controlled by your desire for God? Or are you controlled by your desire for this world? So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it talks about our sensitivity to sin. Are you aware that there's a spiritual battle raging? It says, if you are a true believer, it says in verse 1, you, so that you may not sin. You do not have to sin if you're a believer. Um, but the good thing is that when we do, we have an advocate. We can go to Jesus. We can go to him for forgiveness. And that's what believers do. Do you confess your sin? Do you admit that? Are you readily confessing your sin? First John four two and three says, "By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God." See that connection back to the first part of chapter one. It's about the confession that Jesus is fle- came in flesh. For man does not, man has a hard time admitting that he came in the flesh, because if God became a man it's it's hard for man to be, want to become God. And so there's that, there's that disconnect there. He continues there in verse 3, he says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Continuing with the confession in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, Resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. MacArthur puts it this way He says, Believers confess their sins, unbelievers deny theirs. So are you quick to confess your sins? Or do you hem and haw and try to justify and excuse your sin? The other way you deal with your sin is do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? And this, is a, this can be a hard one to take because there's no assurance of salvation while you're living in disobedience. Um, that's painful, but it's true. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there's no assurance of salvation while you're living in disobedience. But continuing that journey in the sin, do you get tired of this burden of sin? R.C. Sproul said, the closer we are to God, the more the slightest sin will cause us deep sorrow. Sorrow. Paul said in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Do you hate your sin? The last set of scriptures we'll look at is um, 1 John 2. We'll continue there in verse 3. Read through verse 6. It says, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John 14:15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The meaning of this passage is completely unmistakable. It's that obedience to Christ's commands is both a sign and a test of our love for him. Justin Peters says, None of us obeys perfectly, but one of the clearest indications that the new birth has come is a, marked life, is a life marked by increasing obedience to the commands of our Lord. It should be our heart's desire to obey him. Yes, we will have setbacks, But the trend should be in more obedience. Less sin, more obedience. And the Apostle John states it so beautifully in 1 John 5, 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It may seem odd to read that his commandments are not burdensome. You know, many times we we've, we've may have grown up or be conditioned to think that, you know, the commandments is a whole bunch of Christianity, is a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, and maybe I can have fewer don'ts than do's, and, and you know, it, it, that's not what it is. O- keeping the commands of Jesus is this willingness to obey the letter and the spirit of the scriptures. You know, it should cause us great concern. It should cause great concern if you're a believer and you hear someone else constantly asking what they can get away with. You know, trying to figure out the bare minimum of obedience. That's not obedience. Obedience is doing the letter and the spirit of the scriptures. So if we do obey his commands, do you experience answered prayer? In 1 John 3.22 it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So there's other tests that continue on within 1 John through through the five chapters. One of those is, do you love Christ so much that you eagerly await to see him at his return? You know, I think many, if we're really honest, may struggle with that some. Because there's many things here that we love that are good. I mean, our family, Right? But we must love Christ more, more than even our family. Another one is, can you discern between spiritual truth and error? You know, we're to test the spirits to see if they're from God. You know, every false religion fails that test. Um, The last one I mentioned is, have you suffered rejection because of your faith? Now, this is a hard one because we typically want to be well thought of. We typically want to be liked. But have you ever experienced people rejecting you or looking down upon you um, or thinking you don't measure up or just simply not want to have anything to do with you simply because you stand for what is right? That's a sign that that is one of the tests that you have been rejected because of your faith. So to put all that together, salvation transforms our minds, our wills, our affections, and our behaviors. Like it's been said previously, it's not merely knowing with your mind. James 2.19 says the demons believe that God exists and shudder. So you are faced with a question. We've gone through many questions. We've gone through many tests here. And you may point back to your childhood. And you may remember verbally declaring Christ as Savior. And you take comfort in that for your salvation. You may remember talking to a preacher and being all emotional. Or you may remember that time in vacation Bible school. I mean, those were real tears. You may have even been baptized. You know, that's so common. And in one sense, that's really understandable. But it's the wrong approach. You know, God can and does save children. No doubt about that. He does as he pleases. But if all you can do is point back in time as assurance of your salvation then please read all of 1 John. You're in grave danger, if that's all you have. You know, so many churches, and and perhaps they've got good intentions, but they've got this conveyor belt of childhood professions and baptisms, and there's no real evidence of saving faith. You know, that's especially true of children that have been raised in a Christian home. Again, Justin Peters says that's simply showing that the child has at least normal intelligence. But too often the parents interpret that as saving faith. And many times it's not. John Popper in a uh in a podcast back end of last year, I guess it was maybe November, he said, none of us will ever get to a point in our Christian maturity where it is not possible theoretically. To doubt the authenticity of our surrender, in other words, it is theoretically possible, no matter what you say or what you do, to think you might be a fake. You might not be totally surrendered, no matter what you have done. And he goes to one Corinthians thirteen three and says, "If I, where it says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing." He continues, he says, it is shocking to realize that to actually have the courage to be burned at the stake and in those last horrible moments with the flames licking in pain at my skin, to have the thought enter my mind, you're not real. You're not really surrendered. You're not a real Christian. You just want to be remembered. You're just a fake trying to earn your salvation. You know, that's, that's very sobering. The fact that we never get beyond the theoretical possibility of doubting. But that's why we have the Scripture. That's why we go to the Scripture when we have our doubts. Because perhaps the direst warning in all of Scripture on this subject is in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? and in your name perform many miracles and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness jesus says that many will think they have saving faith there will be many religious people who will hear those horrible words depart from me and they will be cast into hell so perhaps through these tests these questions you've realized that you're not saved You know, this isn't a trial run where you get to give Jesus a chance to see how it goes. To be saved, you must agree with God that you are a sinner. You must believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he was crucified, buried, and rose on the third day. So repent. Abandon your sins and turn to Jesus. Place your trust in him completely to forgive your sins. He took the wrath of God for your sins so that you may have eternal life. The Puritan John Owen described the invitation of Christ this way. Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as that you will rather perish than accept deliverance by me. 2 Corinthians 6 2 says, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray.